Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. I'm Jen Savage. And I'm Melissa Sundwall. We're really excited to be here today. Uh, Melissa and I have talked about creating a podcast specific to EMDR for a while. And so this is our first episode and we're ready to get started. Mm -hmm. I think today we're going to start with talking a little bit about ourselves, how we got into EMDR therapy, and how we came about creating a podcast for it. Mm Our other goal today is to give you guys some information about what our mission is with the podcast, what we're going to be focused on, and what you can expect in future episodes, Um, because we have lots and lots of plans, and I will tell you that they include recordings and interviews of actual sessions and other practitioners, Um, so it's going to be a lot of fun. But for today, we want to give you a bit of an introduction to kind of who we are and how we got into EMDR in the first place. Um, I am a private practice clinician uh, here in Springfield, Missouri, have been for a few years now, um, and work entirely at this point with PTSD um, and trauma with kind of a special emphasis on dissociative disorders, particularly DID. And my initial introduction to EMDR was when a colleague of mine was actually getting trained, and as so many do, she begged me to let her practice on me. And I'm sure that many of you have had a similar experience. Um, And I agreed because I was really, really fascinated by what she was telling me. And that day, we didn't actually do any reprocessing. The only thing that she did was a float back part of the history taking process of EMDR. And I was completely hooked. I decided then there that I needed to get trained in it. Um, And a few months later, I did and have kind of never looked back since. At this point, I'm an approved consultant working on uh, becoming a trainer eventually and love every minute of it. So that was kind of my introduction to it. How about you, Jen? Yeah, similar. Um, Back in grad school, in our program, they mentioned EMDR, but it was maybe like a 15-minute introduction to what it is. So you're aware of the term as you go into practicing And so working in the substance abuse field um, for quite a while, I I felt like I was just getting stuck with clients a lot in their trauma, not knowing what what do I do with this? They're coming to me with all of this complex trauma, all this information, and I had these interventions I was trying, but just not seeing the the healing happen that I was hoping could happen, and especially in the amount of time that we had to work together. So I remembered the EMDR that had been brought up in my training and started looking into it more. Um, with a colleague of mine who actually I think is the one who practiced Mm -hmm. on you. Mm -hmm. And we found a training in Pittsburgh and flew and did part one and then followed up with part two shortly after. And similar to you, was just absolutely fascinated by it. Started integrating it into my practice immediately, even though after part one, I, as I look back, I think, wow, there were so many things I wish I had known. But immediately started using it and just seeing results fast. Um, and so was hooked as well and just continued, became a consultant, which is kind of where I'm at now wanting to do trainings. Melissa and I work very closely in that way. And, um, it's the primary thing that I use with all of my clients. That's where I get all my referrals. 
So kind of speaking to my practice here, I work in private practice as well with a group of other therapists and um, all of my referrals mostly come to me for EMDR. And if not, that's quickly what we're talking about in our sessions. Do a lot of consulting, a lot of just supporting and um, connecting with other EMDR therapists. So that's kind of my world as far as professionally. Yeah. So today we want to kind of let you guys know what our focus will be um, on each episode. And we have a variety of things we're going to do, but um, I think that our conversation that we want to start with is really demystifying what EMDR is and also what it is not. Um, Because when we're introducing it to clients or we're introducing it to other clinicians, there are always a lot of questions and really trying to understand um, what makes EMDR different and how different is it really from other maybe more traditional therapies like talk therapy and CBT and things like that. Um, So one thing I'll say that when I was first getting started with this process, the experience of trying to explain EMDR in a way that made sense to people was really challenging. So if you are relatively new to EMDR, or if you are a client seeking EMDR, um, you can find a variety of explanations. Good and, and bad. <laughs> and good, good and bad. That's really true. And and part of the reason why is because at the root of EMDR, there is the neuroscience that we don't fully understand. And I wish we did. And someday I think we will. And we're getting closer and closer to it every day. But at this point, we cannot actually answer the question of what is EMDR doing on a neurobiological level that causes this change. We have theories, we have hypotheses, and we'll probably get into those um, in future episodes. But for today, I think that we really want to focus on what does this actually feel like in session? And one of the big things is discussing the difference between EMDR as a technique, meaning the bilateral stimulation portion, the weird part of EMDR, versus understanding EMDR as a whole approach. And so, Jen, I know that you talk a lot about that with your consultants. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that I come across of therapists who are newly trained in EMDR look at it as, okay, I wanted another tool that I could use with clients working on trauma. And so here's something I'll add to my toolbox. More like an intervention. Yeah. I'll pull it out when I need it and I'll see, is this client really fit for it? Or, um, oh, this one has too much trauma or struggling with dissociation, so we can't do EMDR. And I really try to help them step back and look at it as a full theoretical approach. And that that starts to get into the AIP model a Mm -hmm. little bit, the adaptive information processing, and just understanding how we conceptualize our clients' um, trauma and the way that manifests in their symptoms and how we're going to treat and approach that is that EMDR approach, that understanding of it. Mm -hmm. And so if we're always working from that place, of knowing what they come in complaining about or suffering from is the symptom of their trauma. And we've got to get to a place where we can reprocess that trauma and build their adaptive networks with that understanding we're doing EMDR. We are not doing reprocessing with everybody. Mm -hmm. Like you said, the weird part, the bilateral, the part that everyone thinks is EMDR. It's a big piece of it, but there's a lot more to the full approach. And so we may work with our clients for several weeks, several months um, in different phases before we even get to a place of reprocessing, but we're still EMDR therapists. 
Um, we may have to have a session of what would be viewed as more traditional talk therapy, or we may bring in techniques from CBT or motivational interviewing as part of this work, but it doesn't mean we're not an EMDR therapist and we're not still functioning from that same place. Yeah, I think a, a good way to understand for people that really identify as an EMDR therapist, this is my primary approach, it really has to do with the way that we conceptualize the stories that we hear. And one of the big differences when we're when we're doing trainings and we're talking to new therapists as they're experiencing the MDR training, if they come from a CBT background, if that is their primary mode, one of the big shifts that has to occur is rather than focusing on this present moment with our clients and really teaching them, which is a valuable skill, really teaching our clients to stay focused on what's happening today, EMDR does approaches it almost exactly the opposite and says we have to understand how our experiences in the past are influencing today. And sometimes I run into a little bit of resistance both with new clinicians that are learning it and with clients. And I don't know if you experience this too, Jen, but there's this feeling of, well, I don't want to talk about the past, right? I'm over that. I shouldn't be thinking about that anymore. I want to live in the present. And that's all really true, except the problem is, is that that is not how the brain works. Our brain always, always references past experience when making present decisions. It has to, right? And so understanding the, the neuroscience of how, how we actually function in the present moment means that we have to not only acknowledge the past, but heal the past if we want to heal today. And that is the, the big difference for EMDR therapists and the way that we conceptualize the things that we're hearing from people. It's not that we want to dwell on the past. It's not that we only focus on the past. In fact, far from it. A huge part of EMDR is resourcing that is very present focused. It has to do with making sure that clients are stable in today so that they can tolerate working on the past. Um, but I think that that is one of the big changes that occurs for new clinicians when they're learning this is learning how to really see every single symptom that somebody is coming in with from the perspective of what experience in their history taught them to respond this way, right? Right. And a couple of thoughts that I have that come from that is that preparation, um, explaining the psychoeducation of that part is so big. And, and for some of our clients, we spend a long time in that place of helping them see their symptoms in that way. So we may know that, but they have to understand that as well in order to see any value in going into the past. Mm-hmm. You mentioned clients who may want to come in and I don't, I don't want to dwell on the past. Let's, mm-hmm. I'm dealing with this right now. Mm-hmm. And that's very true. And so to be able to provide that education that helps them see where that comes from, um, gives them tools to stabilize and to manage the symptoms as they come up so that that trait change versus state change, those concepts of we want to give them the ability to manage the state that they're in of anxiety or depression or addiction, but the underlying work is going to be when we get into that trauma work um, and helping them to see that trauma isn't necessarily what maybe they have been taught it to be, that trauma could be any life experience that's overwhelming, confusing, um, or they're depending at what age they are, but that is just feels difficult and they get stuck in their processing of it. That's a really good point. I think that definition of what is trauma um, is getting broader and broader, but there's still a need for us to help people kind of expand 
when we're talking about trauma, what we actually mean very, very simply is an adverse experience. Right. Right. And it's it's not important to measure how adverse, right, in order to qualify it as trauma. The real question is, what conclusion did your brain come to in response to that experience? And that's how we can get such different reactions from two different people that went through the same life experience. One can have a really extreme reaction and the other has very little symptoms at all. And that's because there's a difference in how they interpret it, the conclusion that they came to after the fact. And so any adverse experience can lead to a really damaging belief change or, um, yeah, kind of a systemic change about the conclusions they come to about who they are, their worthiness, what they can expect from the world and other people. And so adverse experiences can be as simple as a bad run-in with a teacher in the fourth grade, or it can be as extreme as the examples that we all think about when we think of PTSD and trauma. Um, so I think that is a really important distinction of when we're talking about trauma, we're really expanding that definition to include those smaller adverse life experiences that we all have. They're not right. unique. They're they're universal. Um, but the conclusions that we come to in response can be really, really profound. And I think that helps us broaden who we can apply this with our clients, mm-hmm. um, where it's not just a tool we pull out when someone comes in saying, I I experienced something really tragic last week, or I was abused when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But it's if we see symptoms of anxiety, depression, broken relationships, um, any anything, we can start to look at where where did those belief systems or those um, symptoms where are they rooted, and how do we get back into that? And therefore, if if it's any life experience that was adverse, we all have that. We all have that. And, and maybe we were able to process through it naturally. And we don't, you know, need the the therapy to help do that. But if they're coming in with a symptom, that's an indication that it didn't process through well. That's right. And I think one of the things that I notice a lot with both new clinicians and with clients is this feeling of, I understand on a cognitive level, right, because we are familiar with CBT or, you know, we've done a lot of therapy. I can understand cognitively that these things are not true, but that doesn't mean that my gut level knowing agrees with that or that my body agrees with it. So logically, I can know that I'm safe, but I still experience anxiety. And one of the one of the things that I think EMDR does really well and somewhat uniquely is that it it makes us take into consideration all the facets of us to make sure that every level of us has processed that trauma. So not only do we know that on a cognitive level, but our body agrees with it. We know it on an emotional level, and it has associated to many areas of our life so that we don't just get gain and healing in one small section of our life. And I think that for a lot of us, the reason why EMDR is so fascinating is because of those spontaneous gains, right? So suddenly we're seeing change in all kinds of different areas of life rather than just that one thing that we were working on because the brain takes that and generalizes it in such an interesting way. Yeah, that distinction between the the gut level versus mm-hmm. the head level or the mm-hmm. cognitive level is so key with our clients too, a lot of times they, they stay cognitive because that's safe. Mm -hmm. And so they'll talk through their trauma. They'll, 
um, try to process through it in that cognitive way. And that's almost a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. And they, they may be very detached from their body, um, from their emotions. And so part of that preparation and, and working into this, which is all part of EMDR, is getting them familiar with how their brain and their body are connected mm-hmm. and the impact that they, they have on each other. Yeah. Well, and I think that that brings up another good point that happens when when somebody is first starting EMDR, I get a lot of questions about, well, how quickly are we actually going to do EMDR, right? right? Like, you know, why didn't we do EMDR the first session? And, you know, I think we were just kind of talking about, well, in my mind, we are because EMDR starts from the moment that someone walks in and I am conceptualizing their story and we're kind of putting that puzzle together. But there are a lot of reasons why we don't immediately do bilateral stimulation with someone. And I think that one of the things that we can help our clients understand and new clinicians really understand is that the preparation phase is not delaying the real work. It is such a important and profound uh, healing process for them because we're addressing things like dissociation. We're addressing things like, can I tolerate emotion? Or do I even recognize emotion when it happens in my body? Because without those skills, the reprocessing portion of EMDR, number one, is very hard to tolerate, can be uh, very hard to tolerate, and number two, actually goes slower. And so what I always try to share is by doing really good prep work, we are paving the way for a very smooth reprocessing experience. Um, Because the difference between somebody that is, you know, just kind of first starting out on EMDR and we all have to go through this phase and we feel like, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm kind of stumbling through and I feel really awkward versus, you know, years down the road where I have real, I feel much more confident and like I know what I'm doing. At least for me, the biggest difference was knowing when somebody was really ready to reprocess. Right. I'm not starting that too soon, not being scared to start it, but really having that uh, clarity about, okay, we have all the skills that we need in order to do this and and have a pretty good prediction that this is going to go smoothly. Um, I don't know if you experienced something similar, Jen, kind of that transition of, ooh, I feel like I know when to start this, this portion of it now. Yeah, just a nice gut feeling or instinct. Mm -hmm. um, And and two, to be able to allow yourself to be flexible to move back Mm -hmm. into reprocessing or, excuse me, into resourcing whenever it's necessary, that it it can be fluid, mm-hmm. that um, there's parts of assessment or reprocessing that we do is fairly scripted and rigid, but the idea that resourcing can be at any point in time. Mm-hmm. It's not just a phase, and then once you complete that phase, you're done, but that we have this instinct of we need to go back in and strengthen these resources more or pull them in or develop new ones to continue with the reprocessing. That's right. So just real quickly, in case those words reprocessing and resourcing are not familiar to you, because um, that's kind of EMDR lingo. So we might use those words, you know, in therapy in general quite a bit, but in the context of EMDR, resourcing and preparation is one of the first phases that we do. We either do it first or second. Um, and the resourcing phase is all about making sure that the client has the internal and external resources they need in order to tolerate the rest of the work. 
And that can look like skills for relaxation, skills for awareness of emotion and identifying emotion, expressing emotion, all those things. It can be relational resourcing, right? So making sure that they have uh, practical supports in their life and things like that. So resourcing, we will talk about that a lot because honestly, it is one of my favorite things to do with people. It is a place where we get to be really creative and make this process very individual and so personal for people. Things like their spirituality can be a big part of it. Pets can be a big part of it. Um, Hobbies are a big part of it. It is a, just a landmine of uh, personal strengths that we can really help our clients develop. Um, And it's a whole lot of fun. And so that's kind of what we mean by resourcing. When we say reprocessing, we're referring to that portion of EMDR where we're targeting specific memories, trauma memories, adverse experiences, and using bilateral stimulation, that back and forth stimulation, in order to help the brain move through and digest that traumatic material. Um, And so in this context, in the EMDR context, that's what we mean by those words. You know... As we're talking about misconceptions, I'm trying to think of other misconceptions that newly trained therapists or even clients may have heard out there. I think oftentimes I hear clients come in and they've got this um, idea of, okay, I want to do EMDR and this will take about six sessions, right? Mm-hmm. And then we'll we'll be done and I'll go back to life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm not really sure where that misconception even came from. I don't know if that's from early, early EMDR, Mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely not the reality in the way I practice it. I think it can be if someone's coming in with a single incident trauma um, and maybe they've, they've done, they don't have a lot of trauma in their past or they've done work on it before and they just have something new that come in, we can do it very effectively. Um, could be very short-term relationship therapeutically, but oftentimes the clients that we see or that come in with that idea have a history of adverse life experiences that we really need to work through or are really um, neglected in their resources. They, they may not have those strong resources and we need to develop them and install them and strengthen them because if we're just working with a network of maladaptive um, thought patterns and responses, we have to have something to integrate that into for it to ever be adaptive. So that idea of a misconception of that it's short term and that it's um, really super fast, super fast. Yeah, <laughs> it is efficient, but we have to also meet the need of the client and move at a pace that they're responding and we're not flooding them. We're not um, overstimulating them with this, but I take a very much um, much slower process, slower mm-hmm. approach, cautious, um, and just kind of conceptualizing all of that. I think specifically because I work with complex trauma, That's right. 99.9% mm-hmm. of my cases are complex. And there are some situations where it can be a pretty short-term thing. I know that there have been some circumstances where I've worked with people on an upcoming life event that they wanted to be really well prepared for. Um, and other clinicians do this as well. So things like performance anxiety, um, if, if there's not a significant, you know, trauma, traumatic history related to that, um, but just the normal human experience of, I don't like to 
do this thing in front of a whole lot of people, right? That can be a much more short-term thing. We do that for uh, medical stuff sometimes. Um, I've done that with women that have natural anxiety about childbirth or uh, a medical procedure coming up. That can be a pretty short-term thing. Um, But what Jen and I see the most of, and I think a lot of clinicians do, is people that come in with a lifetime of adverse experience. And the more that we hear these stories, the more that it's kind of unfolding layer by layer that there is trauma after trauma. And it's those stories that we really cannot say with much confidence, yeah, we're going to do three to six sessions and you're going to be, you know, exactly where you want to be. Um, so I think that what the client is asking to work on has a big um, impact on how long it's going to take. And most of the time when somebody comes in, they have a very, very long list of symptoms or struggles or bad relationship patterns that that they want to address. It's not just this one thing, this one phobia. Um, there are some clinicians that that's what their practice is. And so their sessions uh, tend to move a lot faster in that regard. And so that is a really challenging question to answer the how long does EMDR take? Um, but hands down, no matter what the the issue is, I still find it to be the fastest and most efficient um, in terms of addressing the depth of the complaint with the most therapeutic efficiency. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's been your experience as yeah, well. The amount of work you're able, and when I say work, um, I guess progress, insight mm-hmm. that you're able Change. to gain in a session is, oh, I don't, I don't, couldn't give a specific number to it, but mm-hmm. tenfold what you could, what I have experienced in a traditional talk therapy. Agreed. When you're ut- utilizing bilateral and the reprocessing piece, their brains are working so fast and so hard, and they feel that afterwards usually pretty um, tired after an EMDR reprocessing session, but it just reprocesses so much faster than our verbal capacity to actually talk about it. And so to be able to switch into that place where we're working at a much more like efficient level, we see the number of sessions does decrease, but there's maybe more work to do, you know, on other areas. I think a lot of times that short number of sessions I see come up with clients who have an EAP Mm -hmm. um, or coming in with their funding sources being somewhat limited. And we can definitely still work with those clients. Um, EMDR is a great fit for them really because it is so effective um, and efficient but we just need to be wise and cautious about what we're choosing to target. That's that right. Someone who comes in with a limitation on their, you know, financial resources or maybe they're just in town for a while or they're going to be moving um, or they're in treatment for a certain period of time. We don't want to necessarily target that youngest childhood experience and try to be working through material that we're not going to be to see come to completion so just being really wise in how we conceptualize those cases and how we sequence their targets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both topics that we will talk about in the future. Yes. About yes. how to do that well, because those are some of the the most common questions that I get from new therapists and consultees as they're trying to learn all this. Yes. One other big misconception I want to make sure to bring up today is the idea that EMDR has to be rigid. Um, it's not personal, scripted cold. That might be an extreme word, (laughs) but um, robotic. I hear robotic robotic. a lot. That's good. Um, Just knowing that we can still be us as therapists Mm -hmm. as we do this. And as you're newly trained, there are a lot of scripts. Mm -hmm. And we really encourage that you follow those because you get 
such a strong foundation and get really um, grounded and rehearsed in, in using the protocol accurately. Mm-hmm. But to know that you can still be warm, you can still be a therapist, you can still be nurturing. And need to. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's mm-hmm. a necessary part to that healing, especially looking at anything attachment related. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it doesn't have to just stay scripted. You don't have to be detached. We are still ourselves as therapists can still have that same approach and whatever is unique to you as a therapist, you can maintain that and incorporate it in with the, the structured piece of it. And then as you get into more advanced topics um, or advanced um, disorders, protocols, Mm -hmm. as you're working with those, you can, there's ways in which that are, you kind of maybe vary slightly from the standard protocol to address a specific need in another area and then come back to that more structured approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, EMDR is definitely a walk before you run practice. So if you are new at this or about to be trained in it, there is a season where you feel very kind of constrained by um, the protocol, by the script, by having to, you know, be looking at these papers and all of that. Two comments about that. Number one, at the beginning, I definitely felt that way. And I never had a client that seemed to care, right? Because they were experiencing so much benefit from it. They actually didn't mind that I was reading a script, right? The other thing is by really letting yourself rely on those scripts at the beginning, it means that you actually can be more in tune to your client, right? So rather than seeing those things as a hindrance at the beginning, know that those scripts are there to support you so that you can be really tuned into your client. And then when you need to make the next choice to do the next thing, you look back down at your script and it's going to tell you exactly what to do. Um, And I, I definitely remember at the beginning kind of having this season of awkwardness of trying to adjust to um, the newness of it all. But eventually, as you do it more and more, those scripts are an appendage to you. They feel so natural. I've been doing this a really long time. They're still right there, you know, next to my chair every single day. I rely on them all the time. And uh, at this point, I probably have them memorized, but they're still there, right? And I think that really kind of giving yourself permission to be in that season of rely on them so you can internalize them. And you will eventually internalize them, especially if you're doing this a lot. Um, But then EMDR is a wide world of creativity. And I feel like it's growing all the time that amazing clinicians and practitioners are coming up with all kinds of creative ways to use it, new protocols, things to do with special populations. And we're going to talk about a lot of that and eventually even interview a lot of people that are doing some amazing things. Um, But this is definitely a walk before you run practice. Um, and the basic protocol is the the skeleton, the backbone of every other protocol. We we go back to it over and over. So give yourself permission to really spend the time you need to make that uh, feel very natural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we start to to wrap up here today, I want to make sure that we highlight a few of our goals for the future episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have specific outline for you, but just knowing what's to come up. Um, we've got some recorded sessions we want to share, and we'll continue to just record various sessions to bring in and highlight different parts of the work that we're doing to show different protocols or different approaches to be able to interview some really skilled and talented EMDR therapists, consultants, trainers, um, clients, mm-hmm. getting a lot of impact and input and feedback from them. Uh, we'd love to keep everybody up to date on 
research that's coming out, new articles that are released, um, book reviews. We've mm-hmm. talked about that. Mm-hmm. There's so many amazing new books um, that people are writing, and it can be hard sometimes to know which ones to prioritize and um, even having the time to read them all. So we'll do our best to kind of give a digest synopsis of uh, some of them and kind of help you guys make decisions about where to invest your money and things like that. And also trainings, um, advanced trainings. You know, Jen and I always go to the conference, just got back from one, um, and, you know, kind of try to keep up with the trainings as much as we can. And so we'll give you guys uh, feedback about that as well so that you can make good decisions about how to prioritize your um, dollars uh, for CEUs and things like that. So we have really big visions for this. We do. We're it's very true. excited. So we would love to hear from you all as the listeners on what you want to hear from us. Um, if there are specific topics of interest, um, specific cases that are patterns that you keep running into, that you have questions on, anything like that. If you want any additional information or any guidance for us on what you would like to hear, we would love that feedback. Mm -hmm. And also, if you are somebody that's looking for an EMDR uh, therapist in your area, um, there is a website that you can go to to find uh, the people near you that uh, are trained and certified to do EMDR, and that is at emdria.org, E-M-D-R-I-A, right? dot org. <laughs> um, and they have a find a therapist search. So if you are in that boat and looking for a skilled clinician, that's what I would recommend. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us, we have a Facebook page called notice that. Um, and in the outro, we'll also give you details about how to contact, contact us, um, in other ways. And so thank you guys so much for being with us for our very first episode. I hope you come back and hear the rest. Um, Jen and I are really excited to do this and feel free to message us on Facebook and let us know what you'd like to hear next. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to noticethat at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time.